You're listening to Amphibicast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, tonight, I've got a great guest. I've got Nick Gamble of the Cleveland Frog Company, and he's got a tremendous amount of experience working with a few genera that aren't really particularly common in the hobby and he sort of pioneered one or two of them so we're going to get into that and as usual i want to thank everyone for leaving the nice apple podcast reviews the five-star reviews are great great way to help out the show by supporting it getting me out to a wider audience and i want to thank everybody who took some time to sign up for the patreon uh definitely helps defer some of the costs of running the podcast the upkeep so if you want to take a chance uh well, I wouldn't say take a chance. <laughs> if you want to take a look at the at the uh, Patreon, check it out. See if it's for you. That's totally cool. $5 tier gets you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And other than that, uh, I, I want to get into it because Nick and I have kind of been BSing a little bit off air and we've kind of covered nothing. I wanted to cover so much more because we started talking about, about work and all sorts of other stuff, which I kind of do. But I, I want to get into it right away here. So uh, Nick... First of all, welcome. Thanks for doing the show. Um, how you doing tonight? I'm good, man. How are you? I appreciate you having me on. I'm just top notch. Just doing fantastic. We had each other laughing off of, off air of a little bit, so we're gonna try and <laughs> try and rein it in. It's not gonna be a serious show, but we'll try. So, Nick, why don't we start off at the beginning? Why don't you tell us your story? What were some of your first experiences with amphibians, and what? led you to dart frogs and how did you end up where you are today with the cleveland frog company uh i mean uh, when i was a little kid probably like i don't know five six years old i would uh, go we would live uh, in this neighborhood and at the end of the street there was this big uh i don't know drainage ditch if you want to say and every year it would just be filled with thousands of little baby toads so I would walk around there and I would catch them and then I would sell them to all the fishermen in the neighborhood because they would use them as bait. Evil, but, you know, five or six years old, I didn't know. Uh, other than that, you know, uh, as a kid, I would, you know, catch wild frogs, leopard frogs, things like that, and try to keep them as pets. Uh, my parents were pretty supportive of my exotic pet habits and I they would let me keep all kinds of different things like iguanas and hamsters and ferrets and all kinds of stuff so that broadened my horizons a little bit and then uh i guess the main thing was i was at a buddy's house one day and we were sitting there hanging out and he had some tree frogs but i had never any interest in them and we're sitting there and they started calling well it caught me off guard and i'm like what is that and he told me about it and it was them and then he's i was like that's really cool but then he's like, no, it's not that cool when they're calling at nighttime and they're keeping you up at night. So at that point, having pet frogs interested me. I obviously didn't want to stay up at night. So I started researching it and I came across dart frogs uh, and they were active during the day. So I was like, those are perfect. Well, at the, that point in time, I had a, a pet tarantula. I had some scorpions. I had fish. So I uh, took my tarantula. And I went down to the Cleveland Reptile Show. And there I met a guy named Mac who was running Mac's Poison Frogs. I don't know if anybody of your listeners would remember him or not, but he was there. And uh, long story short, I ended up trading him my tarantula, which was a cobalt tarantula. And I traded him that for some dart frogs. And that was my first attempt at keeping frogs. Um, let's just say... I killed a lot of innocent frogs in the beginning. 
you know how the beginner stuff goes because at that point in time uh i didn't know about dendroboard or any of those things so i didn't have the resources to go and learn about it it was all trial and error like everything else i remember i remember that too i remember starting out with erratus around maybe 2003 and just not having a tremendous amount of success because even though they'd been around for really probably since the mid nineties, there really wasn't a tremendous amount of information on them. Like, just like you said, not, not at all. I mean, what, what did we have? It was just Dendro board and some of the forms and that was about it. I mean, at that point, price lists were what emails and mail in lists. There, there weren't like the, 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 uh, exporter websites that there are now that we can go to and find it was all paper. Yeah, that or the, the back of like Reptile Magazine or something like that. Right. Exactly. <clears throat> was there anyone who mentored you or was able to steer you in the direction of better husbandry and learning how to keep them? Yeah, you know, as a matter of fact, there was, uh, you know, through going to the Reptile Convention and getting into dart frogs through Mac, I met Mike Novi who also was vending at the show. And, uh, you know, I'd purchase some frogs from Mike and I would BS with him when I would go to the shows every once in a while. And uh, at that point in time, he had taught me, told me about Dendro board. So I started reading there and learning a little bit more. And then um, <clears throat> I had met Jared Ruffing. I purchased some frogs from him. And uh, he was helping Mike at the time and he had to pursue some other life goals so he stepped away from that which left an opening and mike ended up asking me if i wanted to come help him in his froggery <clears throat> so for about a year and a half two years i actually would go to mike's house you know three times a week and and help him clean up after his collection and feed and do tadpole care and all of those things so he's the person that i learned everything that i learned about dart frogs he's who i learned from Mike's a great guy. I've had him on the show a couple of times and I've seen some videos of his setup at his home and it's just, it's wild. I mean, the amount of effort and time and everything that goes into all, I mean, all that work. I mean, he changed, he's changing paper towels every single day in his tree frog room. And it's just amazing. I mean, he and I have spoke a couple of times, like he, like, I think it was, I wanted to have him come on the show on a Tuesday. And he's like, no, that's cricket day. And I said, What's that like? He goes, you have no idea. I mean, you, you were there, so I'm sure you can tell me what it was like. Dan, you have no idea the amount of work that is involved in his froggery. It, it, it literally would take him all day long to do, feed all his frogs, change all his tab. He, he did tadpole water changes daily, every single day for every single tadpole that he had. All his dart frogs he raised individually, so he would change every single cup every single tree frog tank change all the paper towels out it would literally take us i would probably be there until three four o'clock in the morning sometimes helping him yeah and i know mike keeps kind of late late hours that was another thing we were when we were arranging to get on the show together mike would text me at like midnight or like two in the morning <laughs> like mike yeah. i gotta be up in like three hours he goes oh i'm sorry i'm sorry but yeah, I don't expect to hear from him when I call him during the daytime. Yeah, he's in all in all fairness, though he's he's really he's a remarkable person. The things that he's accomplished and some of the species that he's worked with over the years has just been great. Was there a particular dynamic to to being mentored? That I mean, one of the things that I'm always curious about today is now that we have things like like YouTube and we have 
the internet being what it is, I don't necessarily know that people could have the same, I don't want to say intimate, but I guess the same close relationship with the mentor that you might have had in the old days. I mean, do you think that that dynamic has, has changed as technology's kind of advanced a bit? Uh, I definitely think it's changed. I mean, the value in having a mentor like that is the hands-on experience and the face-to-face value because you're sitting on the internet. You're not going to think of every single question and every single situation to ask somebody. Whereas you're working there, you're standing right there next to them. And as you're working, things happen. And it allows you to ask those questions and learn by example and see it with your eyes and so on and so forth. And just the amount of time that I was there in general just exposed me to so many different things. I mean, I can't place a value on what I learned from him because everything that I know today was because of Mike. Uh, As far as the hobby now, I mean, social media is, is, there's good and bad to it because it's, it's exposed the hobby to more people. It's brought more people in, which is great, but it's also exposed people to a lot of, I don't want to say incorrect information, but a lot of dogma, we'll say things that are antidotal that don't really mean anything that aren't based on fact. Does that, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Oh, absolutely. So I think that that is, the the negative of it is that some people are getting the wrong advice from the wrong people. And with as saturated as social media is, it's hard to tell who the good breeders are from the bad breeders. You know, when we were coming up, you and I, we knew who the people were to go to because it was such a a small group of close knit people. Now there's so many people out there that are interested in it. It's almost impossible to keep track of everything anymore. In my opinion, anyways. I just remember being young and there was, at least where I live, there was maybe three or four guys and I could, I could tell you stories about <laughs> some of the crazy stuff that happened in the old days, but it was a very unique experience because when you went into the local shops, you would BS with the guy for a while and he would tell you about different projects that he was working on. And at the, I mean, I don't know if you remember when everything in the trade was very heavily wild caught, almost everything was wild caught. So it was really a case of just figuring out how to keep everything alive. And I feel like now that Mm -hmm. with the advent of captive breeding and being able to produce successive lines of captive bred animals in in captivity, obviously that selects for hardier and and better quality animals. But do you remember what it was like back then dealing with animals that really weren't in the best condition and then having to really work with them to keep them alive? Like, did you ever go through that as well? Uh, I think I got lucky on that aspect of it. I didn't have to deal with a lot of that because I was able to locate good breeders who had quality animals. So I've never really had to to deal with that aspect. So I can't really speak on it. Uh, the, the quality of wild caught now that I've had is obviously much better. You don't have to worry about that kind of stuff now. So, I mean, unfortunately I can't speak on that because I wasn't a part of that when I came in. I just remember working at a local shop in the in the 90s and they would give us a list and whatever was on the list if we wanted it in the sh- in the to sell we would check it off and sometimes we would get stuff that we had no idea what it was and we would just check it off and we ended up getting I think it might have been Philomedusa bicolor I just remember it was this gigantic tree frog that doesn't even look like regular bicolors today it looked 
larger and had more like it had red on the side it almost looked like a, a uh, red-eyed tree frog on steroids and it only lasted like a day because i can only imagine like the horrific process that it had gone through to get you know to, to the local shop but um i mean in terms of advances in in keeping and social media do you want to tell us about s- some of the good stuff that that you've encountered as opposed to some of the negative stuff uh well like i said there's just the fact that the hobby is available to more people is obviously a good thing because the more people that are exposed the the more opportunities we all have to obtain frogs that we're maybe wanting you you know what i mean uh there's the friendship aspect of it some of my closest friends that i have today came from the dart frog hobby like troy and mike and, and those people um the the sharing of information is a plus because you know while there is bad information being passed there's also a lot of good information out there too and you have people like troy doing youtube videos who are passing that knowledge along so i mean that that's one good aspect is that you know these people have access to all that different knowledge it's definitely beneficial to have good resources and i find that it's interesting when you when you look at especially dart frog content there isn't a tremendous amount of information out there. And when I say information, I mean good and bad. I'll just kind of wrap it up as the sum total. But there's compared to other species like white tree frogs or I hate using the word Pac-Man because some of these kids are so young they don't even remember the video game <laughs> Pac-Man. But the, the Pac-Man frogs, I feel like that in and of itself is a whole other world because you have millions and millions of people who gravitate towards those species, whereas... In my opinion, anyway, the dart frog community has always been a little bit more close-knit. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, tell us about your, your own company. I mean, you, you have, you're the proprietor of the Cleveland Frog Company. Do you want to tell us about how you started the business and what you're up to presently? Uh, well, the, why did I start? I, I left the hobby for a little bit, as we talked about earlier, and I came back. I came back, and, you know, I see... Uh, it's like I said, there, there's a large group of people. People don't really know who to go to. And, you know, there's the good companies and the good breeders. And then there's some people who, you know, you see and you might think to yourself, they probably shouldn't be selling frogs. But um, for me, a lot of it was just a labor of love. You know, coming up, I've been in the hobby for 15 years and I've worked with a lot of different frogs. And, you know, because of that, you know, I might buy this or I might buy this product, but I didn't really like it. So I said, well, I'm going to make something that works for me. So I made things over the years that I used on my frogs and, you know, and uh, I would share it with friends and I'd always get good compliments on it. So uh, that was part of the reason why I decided to start it, because I figured why not offer this to everybody? So, you know, I came in and I see all these different things and I said, you know, maybe I should do something more because I've been in the hobby for so long. I feel that there was value to, to offer that to other people, if that makes sense. No, it, it totally makes sense. I, I think that sometimes when you're, when you're, how do I put this? Like when you're an enthusiast about something, like let's just, let's pick something else. Like let's say like model cars. I mean, I don't know of anybody who makes model cars for a living, but I mean, if you do, that's totally cool. But 
if you're really good at something like that, that's not your full-time job, you, it, it almost seems like you can devote more attention to it because you're more obsessed with, with quality. I mean, did you kind of find that to be the case where you might have been dissatisfied with larger, bigger operations that might have lost focus and then it's easier to regain that focus by working on a project that you're really passionate about on a personal level? Yeah, I, absolutely. You know, I think when I working with Mike and and helping him, he taught me a lot of good habits and a lot of uh, uh, different ways to do things that were of benefit. And it's made me just as anal as he is to some degree, as far as my care and the amount of attention to detail that I put in my collection. I mean, like I do my tadpoles individually. I do the water changes every day, every other day, just because I like to be able to see what's going on at no point in time do i not know what's going on with each individual frog in my collection you know what i mean but i think that's because i take the time to invest the time into my collection like that but at the same time i think the biggest thing that i've learned out of all of it is to be attentive but to be hands-off do you want to tell us what you're working with now in terms of species and the number of frogs? Um, I have 17 tanks, I believe, right now. Uh, I have a few different kinds of Amarega, some Ufaga. Uh, I have uh, Zaparo, Vitatis, Bluefoot Lukes, uh, Green Imitators. I have uh, Loma Calubre. I have some Lita coming in in a couple of weeks. Um, I mean, that's the majority of my collection. I like, I always got into the oddball frogs, the, the things that weren't so common and weren't kept by many people. Uh, and I think that's why I have a lot of what I have as far as the Zapparo or the Femoralis or my affinity towards Amarega themselves. That's what I want. I was curious about. I've never kept them, and I know that they're out there. I know a few people who do work with them, but they don't seem to have the same, I guess, the same status in terms of being a hobby staple as as, as Tinctorius or Phyllobates or whatnot. What drew you to them, and how did you end up work? I mean, it's it's Emerega, and you also work with. I've never even heard of this genus before. Is it Allobates or Allobates? I've always pronounced the Allobates. Okay. I don't know if that's correct or not, but you know how the Latin names go. We all pronounce them differently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I know. <laughs> I mean, they're definitely too, <laughs> we're cracking up. I'm sorry, everyone. I've lost all credibility. Why don't, um, why don't you give us a rundown of the two genera and why don't we start with, 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 with Emerega? Why don't we talk about some of the caveats to their care and what's available in the hobby and how they sort of came to be? You know, we, we talked earlier about some of the Amarega that were in the hobby that just they're gone now. Like uh, the greenback trivitata, for example, you're not finding those anymore. Or the orange pepper eye, you're not going to find those anymore. Uh, or my orange heads, for example, uh, we were talking about that earlier, as far as I understand it, which I confirmed with Elena March pepper, I have the last breeding group of orange head pepper eye in the United States, which is surprising to me that, that Amarega have reached that state. You know what I mean? Uh, what drew me to them 
at that point in time, I was trying to diversify my collection. I'm into the loud frogs. I like listening to the calls. That, that's what interests me the most about dart frogs. Uh, so Understory sent me a price list and the pepper I were on there. And I said, ooh, I haven't seen those before. Uh, let me try my hand at those. So I got them and they just became my favorite frogs in my collection. And then it just grew from there. I realized that nobody else was keeping them. So it, it kind of motivated me to want to keep them even more. And then ever since I, my first that I bought was the orange pepper eye. And after I kept them, I just, it grew from there. I mean, I'm just pulling up a picture here of them and it's a really, it's a very visually interesting looking frog. They, they look, they don't even look like your, your typical dart frog, I guess, based on what you think of with dendrobates, but are you keeping them the same way that you would keep other species? I mean, is there, is there any specific husbandry needs that they have? Or I mean, I've, I've heard, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that some of the species tend to prefer to live near streams. Is that is there any truth to that? Uh, that's what I hear as well. I always keep all of my Amarega tanks with a pond area for tadpole deposition. Uh, the, the, I, they don't, I don't really keep them any differently than my other dart frogs. The one thing that's the difference between them is, is they require a pretty large tank. I probably wouldn't keep them in anything smaller than a 40, 45 gallon. And generally I keep all of my Amarega in 55 gallon tanks because these frogs, they're not like regular dart frogs. They can actually jump and they could easily jump the distance of, uh, of three, four feet if they wanted to. That's pretty, that's pretty impressive. I mean, I've seen some of my bicolors. I've got the bicolors I have now are not the same as the ones that I got in 2016. And it's amazing how much air these guys can get when they really want a boogie. Can, um, can you, do you, can you keep them communally? Can you keep them in groups or they have like a, like a social dynamic you need to be concerned about? Yeah, no, you can keep them communally. Uh, they're not really aggressive. They're not really very territorial. Uh, I've heard of some female egg eating here and there. I've never personally experienced it, but I've heard of others that have. Um, they might peck at each other here and there and be a little moody, but it's nothing aggressive. It's, you know, it's over in a second or two. So they're pretty good community frogs. Uh, I try to keep mine in like two, two groups. You don't want to really overdo the males or the females because of the egg eating and, you know, enough areas for the males to call and outcompete each other or whatnot. Uh, as far as the tank setup, I like to use big leaf plants because they seem to like to roost on those at nighttime. Uh, I can't really think of anything else right now if you want to continue on your end. Um. What about the call? You mentioned that they have a kind of a unique call. They do. It, it kind of reminds me of spring peepers almost. Yeah, I know what that sounds like. like. They they kind of sound like that. They're definitely probably some of the loudest frogs in my collection. And uh, they call the majority of the day. They're, they're silent in the afternoon, but that's about it. What about clutch size? Are they... Do they produce a lot of eggs? Are they more seasonal or how, how would, like, if you wanted to set them up for breeding, what would you do? 
they they're pretty seasonal in my experience they require a defined wet and dry season and when you go from the dry to the wet season it requires a lot of water to get them going uh at that point i'll fill the pond up with water and uh i start feeding them every single day eventually they've always just laid in a leaf litter for me and then they would just deposit the tadpoles in the pond uh, other than that, like I said, big leafed plants, they, they enjoy those, lots of leaf litter, and uh, that they like it, I wouldn't say wet, but probably a little bit more water than I would use on my other dart frogs when misting. How are you setting the vivarium up? Are you, are you using an aquarium or are you using sort of like a front opening, like almost like an exoterra type situation? I personally use all top opening aquariums with my Amarega simply because when I try to keep them in front openings in the past, they would spaz out and they would jump out on me every single time. So after a few times of them jumping out on me, I said, enough is enough of that. And I've kept them in top opening tanks ever since. But I mean, so that was the main part of it. But the other reason was because of the size of the tank and the fact that if they want to, they can jump so far in my opinion, a 55-gallon is the minimum that you should be keeping a large Amarega in. And how, how big are they? They, I mean, they're, they're, they're fairly decent size, right? They're kind of on par with, like, say, erratus. Is that how big they are? Yeah, I would say the males are probably about the erratus size. Females are a little bit bigger than the males. But, yeah, that's a good comparison with erratus size, yeah. Now, Trivitata, on the other hand, they're about tank size. Oh, really? Okay. I've never kept those either, so. Yeah, they're, they're probably the largest Amarega, and like I said, they're they're about tank size. They're pretty big frogs. Yeah. Actually, I should say I haven't kept any Amarega. I don't know why I just said that. I don't know why I just said that. I haven't kept any in this, any of the species. You've got to change that, Dan. I know. It's it's, it's aspirations. <laughs> I'm I'm currently working with a few things in my, my collection. I kind of have some odds and ends that I need to tie up, but... I'm not necessarily looking to get any new frogs now, but what about your, your tadpole? And this doesn't necessarily have to apply, uh, apply to Amarega, but what about your, your tadpole routine? When you get a clutch of eggs, how do you, from start to finish, how, how do you take care of your eggs up through the tadpole stage? Mm, that, that depends on how much time I have. <laughs> you have all the time in the world. I mean, sometimes I may leave the eggs in the tank if I don't have the time to take care of the eggs like I want to. Uh, we'll assume that I am taking care of the eggs. What I do is I'll take the tray of eggs out. I'll stick it into a plastic container with a tiny bit of water on the bottom. And, you know, I keep it with a lid on to keep the moisture inside. And then every day I'll open up that lid and I'll very lightly, barely spray the surface of them with tadpole tea, which is... Uh, tannin water and i'll lightly mist them every day to simulate the male watering the eggs and then i just continue to do that until the tadpoles hatch out of the eggs and then i move them into their tadpole container and you raise them individually i personally do yes most people raise them you they can be raised communally and from what i understand the people that do keep amarega they raise them communally i personally prefer to raise them individually it, it just seems to me that that's the one thing about Amarega in my personal experience is that the tadpoles are sensitive and the froglets are sensitive. 
I would have a lot of premature froglet deaths trying to raise them up. But it seemed that once they hit the three, four months of age, that stopped. They were fine after that. But that first few months, it seemed to me like the Amarega tadpoles are, are more sensitive than other dart frogs. That seems to be the crucial point where people, myself included, tend to run into problems. I mean, I had difficulty with froglets. The, the tadpoles was one thing, but once they would metamorphose and come out of the water, that first couple of months seemed to be the most crucial period where you'd even have froglets that looked very, they looked, they were big, they were robust, they seemed, they were taking melanogaster, and then all of a sudden they would just fail to thrive. Is that experience something that you've had in the past too? Or Yeah, I mean, I think it just comes with the territory of keeping dart frogs to a certain extent. I mean, that's why frogs lay so many eggs and have so many tadpoles to increase their survival of offspring surviving into the wild, right? So, I mean, that's why I think that that occurs. And uh, do you ever offer really small prey items to get them? I mean, I know some people like, especially with Ufaga, they really like to load them up on springtails. I know that some people like to use clay that's been fortified with minerals and then kind of culture some springtails on top of that and feed them off to kind of give the froglets a head start. Do froglets come out eating say like melanogaster or, or hydei? I mean, I have no, I've never seen an Amarega froglet, so I don't um, know what kind of prey they can take. Believe it or not, as big as those frogs are as adults, their ne- neomorphs come out really, really tiny. So uh, I think that that has a part to play in why they may be so fragile. But yeah, I would pre-seed containers, grow out containers with springtails, so that way there was they were colonized by the time you know i put the the the, the froglet into the grow out container uh i would probably do that two or three weeks before i got to that point so that way they had enough because they're so small i wanted them to be able to just to you know eat those and get a little gain some weight i don't feed my froglets flies the probably the first week or two i just let them feed and, and graze entirely on springtails uh probably after a couple of weeks that's when i'll start adding mellows and generally after about two weeks they'll start taking mellows you want to tell us a little bit about the olibates as well because that's another genus that i'm completely i mean i've heard of them i've seen pictures but i've never kept them and i honestly don't know anybody besides you who has the Zapparo, you mean? What's that? The, the Zapparo, is that what you're referring to? I guess what, I, I'm going to sound like a complete fool here, but whatever's in the Olivetes genus, I'm, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to openly admit I have only seen them in footnotes. So you're the you're the man here. You you school me on it. Tell me about them. I mean, all I have is uh, Femoralis and Zapparo. Uh, Zapparo. Femoralis, I've always liked just because the little brown frog factor, I was just drawn to them because, you know, they're like the ugly duckling. Nobody wants brown frogs. Uh, And then the Zapparo, uh, again, it was me trying to diversify my collection back then, and I wanted a different call, and I came across somebody that had those available, so I purchased them. Uh, The problem with those was, for some reason, the old lines of Zapparo, they seem to scare easy and it would cause them to, to die. 
you could move the tank to the other side of the room and you might lose a frog. That's how sensitive they were. So make a long story short, eventually I lost them and I've always wanted to keep them and they just disappeared from the hobby. I don't even think the old lines of Paro exist anymore. Well, Wickery recently brought them back into the hobby. So I got a group from them and uh, I was able to breed those and yeah, those are probably one of my favorite frogs as well. While we're on the subject of lines, that's actually another good point that I wanted to bring up. Since these two genera are not widely work with, I mean, you, you work with a couple of species exclusively. How is it getting new bloodlines into your breeding project? How do you work that out? Uh, I mean, I get unrelated frogs from you know wickery or whatnot or the person that i'm buying them from when i'm able to uh as far as like uh the tr red trivs i was able to get some wild caughts and then i was able to find another person with another pair so i was able to you know diversify my bloodline in that way uh the orange head pepper eye there is no way for me to diversify that bloodline at all because, like I said, I'm the only person with them. It's not like I can contact somebody and say, hey, do you have a female that I can get from you? <laughs> I don't even have that option. So, I mean, that's a, a lot of pressure to, to have that on my plate because this frog continuing to exist in the hobby rests solely on my shoulders. And my female is about 10 years old, so who knows how much time she has it could be five years it could be 10 years Who, who's to say you know what i mean it's definitely a a significant investment it's it's funny because you always think about things becoming extinct in the wild but it's almost this situation is reversed where we have something that can go extinct in captivity right i mean and that's what's happened to a lot of a lot of the older line frogs you don't really see them or, or hear about them anymore uh the amarega for example how many of the old species and lines can you just you can't find them anymore they're just they don't exist and it's a shame it's interesting how i mean when when, when again when you and i were younger it was sort of a mixed bag or, or at least where i was you'd, you'd get things that would come in kind of sporadically and then they might disappear for a while, but do you think that there should be more diversity in terms of the species that are available in the hobby, or do you think we have enough on our plate as is? I mean, let's be honest here. There's plenty of different frogs for everybody right now. I mean, do I think that we need to bring any more? If it was up to me in a perfect world, I wouldn't bring any more new locales or new species in. I would try to bring in new bloodlines of older species that that exist in the hobby yeah I, so, I i saw a um a larger vendor who was offering f1s of a relatively common locale tinctorious and i started thinking you know what that's probably a pretty good idea because how much can you possibly work with successive lines before you get any kind of genetic issues from uh what do they call it? i think it was is it inbreeding depression or is it, I can't yeah remember, yeah i mean what are your thoughts on that I've heard that the in, that the, that particular instance takes 20, 30 generations, uh, I've heard before, uh, as far as inbreeding problems happen. I guess my biggest issue with that type of things is, you know, in the past, there was no 
hybridization. You weren't allowed to line breed. You couldn't do these things. And now it seems like line breeding, for example, is becoming more accepted and people are getting a pass on creating line bred frogs. Do you know what I mean? I do. And it's actually one of the things that I've been trying to avoid on a, on a personal level. I've been trying to, I mean, just, just so that the secret is out there, which really isn't a secret. It's not anything that dramatic anyway, but I've been, I, I, I had a, a, a related, it had to be related sex pair of bicolors that I got back in 2016, which consistently produce infertile clutches. I don't know if the male's infertile or the female, I don't know what the dynamic is, but they usually give me a few clutches a year. And I started to think, all right, well, I really shouldn't be trying to force a related pair to reproduce anyway. So I started acquiring more bicolors to try and diversify the line because it's just for me, it's like you said, I, I don't really want to line breed here. I'd like to get a, a decent, you know, bloodline working up. And the interesting thing is the newer bicolors that I have acquired look nothing like the original pair that I set out with. So now I start thinking to myself, should I breed them at all? Should I try and get more that look similar to the individuals that I have now? Or do I keep looking and in vain for these two that uh, for something to match these two that I got all those years ago that don't produce anyway? It's 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 an ethical dilemma, I guess. Right. I totally understand. What are your thoughts on on hybrids? Hybrids? I don't think they should exist at all. What do we need to create hybrids for? Like I said, there's you can have every frog, every color of the rainbow right now. I mean, I don't remember this many frogs ever being available to us in the past. Do you? Oh, no. No way. So, I mean, what what, what would be the point other than selfish reasons? That's how I see it. The funny thing is even common species like, well, obviously Azurus is no longer its own species, but for all intents and purposes, we'll just call it Azurus. That, that's an incredible frog. And if yes, you show is. if you show someone who has knows nothing about dar frogs, you show them a picture of that frog. To that person, that's a million million dollar animal, and to us, yeah. it's kind of become more of a disposable locale because they're so ubiquitous in the hobby. But I guarantee you, if no one worked with them anymore, that would drive the pi- the price point up incredibly. Oh, it absolutely would. I mean, when they first came out, I remember they were going for like hundred dollars a frog. Now, sometimes you can't even give them away. <laughs> I know, I know. They're, they are popular with beginners. And as far as the hybrid, I don't want to abandon the whole hybrid discussion entirely. But, bef- you know, I before we move on, I just wanted to ask you, do you think that the whole issue of hybrids in the hobby sets a bad example for beginners? And let me just let me just frame this real quick for you. There's a, a There's a shop nearby that I go to. And they sell Tinctorious as just assorted Tinctorious. And I was looking at the frogs and I started thinking to myself, all right, well, I can kind of identify this one as an Azurius because that's pretty straightforward. But they had some other Tink in there and I was at a loss to figure out what the hell it was. So I started thinking about a beginner getting into the hobby, acquiring this frog and then pairing it with whatever else happened to be in the tank, pairing it with an Azurius or, or God, even like an, an Aratus or something like that of a completely different species. Do you think that that's becoming a problem in the hobby or do you think the hobby is sort of policing itself to keep stuff like that in check? 
You know what? I think that actually the hobby is doing a pretty good job of policing that for the most part. I mean, you have your couple of oddball entities here and there that are doing things on the side, but for the most part, I think the hobby's done a pretty good job of keeping that in check because that's one of the first things we tell people is no hybrids, no hybrids. So, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty proud to be able to say that, actually, that that, that hasn't become a problem. It does seem to be something that, I mean, at least I take a bit of pride in. I guess it's almost like, um, I guess if you bred dogs, like if you bred champion Weimaraners or something like that, obviously you're not going to want to cross it with a standard poodle and mess up all your work. But I don't know. I feel like people always tend to want something new, and I feel like hybrids are like a cop-out. That's just one of those things that people do to try to get something new for cheap. Yeah, well, you know, they can cop it out all they want. But like we just said, the hobby has been pretty good at holding people accountable. And at some point, that person is going to have to answer to the hobby at large. No, that's true. That's definitely true. So in that aspect, like I said, I don't I don't foresee that ever really becoming a problem, at least not right now. I don't. Who's to say what will happen in another 10 years? Because look where we're at now. But I don't foresee that becoming a problem. Do you? Uh, I don't know. I talk to a lot of people on the show, and I talk to people in in you know personal levels and whatnot. And one of the main issues that I have with misinformation being spread towards beginners is that you can just mix and match dark frogs like they're a bag of skittles. And I've had people who I say that to, and they're very very surprised. And they say, "Well, the person at the store said." You can mix and match them. I said, well, there's your problem. You, you listen to the person at the store, which is an honest mistake because you can't blame someone for not knowing something. I mean, it's one thing to give someone misinformation either accidentally on purpose and then you're responsible for it. It's another person to be the, you know, to be the one who received that misinformation and assume that it's fact because someone who should have known better told you that. That's my issue with it. Right. Well, the problem with these pet stores, though, is that they're driven by by profit. They don't know anything about the care. They just see it and they say, ooh, I can sell that. And unfortunately for some of these hobbyists whose ex- first exposure to dart frogs is walking into a pet smart or walking into a mom and pop store. Yeah, I mean, what are you going to believe? You're going to believe the person that has them sitting in front of you and they're telling you this information because, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only person that came into the hobby not knowing that there was other information out there available to me at that point in time. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Definitely. So, I mean, those people are always going to be a part of the pet trade and, and part of that dart frog community. But luckily, they're on the outside. And, you know, most of those people eventually find their way to the dart frog groups and then they get the correct information and then they're able to do what they need to do to correct the issues they have on their end. Yeah, I think that it's just that it's that fringe. It's I guess if we looked at the community as being. Uh, almost like uh, I'm, I'm I'm sorry if I keep using these terrible analogies, but uh, let's just say that the the ideals that we generally consider to be right is, you know, the, the, the solar system, we'll say the sun. And then you've got, you know, people who are not necessarily as serious as the, I guess, the gatekeepers and the, you know, who are really uh, big factors in the hobby. But the people on the periphery, you know, out and kind of circling out where Neptune and Pluto are. The people who don't really take it too seriously because they're not 
as vested in the community as people like we are. That's where I get a little, it gets a little dodgy because I feel weird buying a dart frog from someone who has a table full of corn snakes. I mean, that's not to be disrespectful to corn snake people, but I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, I don't sell frogs, but if I did, I wouldn't sell corn snakes next to them. <laughs> and i've had corn snakes so i'm not an anti-corn snake person you're you're not wrong that's why it's funny <laughs> it's absolutely the truth it's like going to burger king and asking them for a piece of fried chicken yeah and then when they actually hand you one it raises more questions of how they got it that's exactly right yeah i think I, i'm not a big family guy person but there was the episode where they were in like some sort of Costco type situation. And Stewie says, are we really buying shrimp at the same store that we buy tires from? <laughs> I guess that's the same, the same right, exactly. uh, logic behind it. Right. Absolutely. Do you want to tell us about, we touched a little bit on it, but you want to tell us about your daily routine in your frog rooms in terms of maintenance and, um, what your feet, I mean, do you make, are you, if you're making your own cultures and can you just kind of walk us through an average day in your frog room in terms of maintenance and feeding and cleaning and et cetera? You know, in all honesty, I would probably, I mean, I would assume that my daily routine is probably similar to, to most people's that have a dirt frog collection. I come home, I check all my thermometers and make sure that the temperatures are all okay. Uh, I'll check my water levels on my misting system. I'll go through all the tanks looking for eggs and checking to see if tadpoles have been deposited. Uh, I feed my frogs. I go and go through all my froglet bins and check all my froglets and make sure they all look okay. Uh, I'll feed them. I'll do my tadpoles and feed all my tadpoles. I do all my individual water changes. Uh, I probably spend an hour to a day going through everything. And then, you know, once a week I might go through and trim plants or clean glass or things like that. Um, like I said, uh, my biggest thing with my dart frog collection, the one thing that I've always learned was to be attentive, but to be hands off. I don't know how many frogs I killed when I first started simply because of the fact of, Oh crap, I haven't seen them in a couple of days. Where are they at? And then I'm rummaging through the tank trying to find them. And then, you know, a couple of days later, oh crap, I haven't seen them in a couple of days. And then you're rummaging through the tank trying to find them. I mean, that's what kills dart frogs. So, you know, I've learned the hard way. And just in my own personal opinion, hands off is the best policy. I, I just let them do their thing. I'm guilty of that too. I, there's been occasions. I have this one Patricia. And every few months, she'll just disappear. And it's not a particularly overgrown vivarium. It's just it's just leaf litter and some driftwood and cork rounds. And I've got a couple of bromeliads at the top taller enclosure. And I don't know where she goes. And after a few weeks, I start thinking to myself, all right, this is bad. I have to look through here to see if she's still here. And I always find her just sort of lumped up behind this. I'm like, how did you get in there? And why would you right. choose to pee there that long? And then she'll kind of come out like a week or two later, and then she's fine. And then the cycle repeats itself a few months later. Yeah, seriously. I mean, I had a group of Vitatis I didn't see for seven months. I knew they were alive, but I literally did not see them for like seven months. And then all of a sudden, here comes the mail. Now they're out all the time. But yeah. And it took every urge in me not to look through that tank to check on them. But 
you know, you have that little voice in the back of your head saying, don't do it. You're going to regret it. <laughs> so I don't do it. But like I said, it, it, in the beginning, it took a, a few hard lessons to learn that. Leave the frogs alone. What about nutrition? Do you have any preferences in terms of supplements? And how are you feeding your tadpoles? No. Uh, as far as supplements go, I'm a big Rapashi person. That's what I've always used. I'll probably always stick with that. Uh, I use calcium every feeding, except when I use vitamin A. I'll use vitamin A. I use vitamin A probably once a week, once every other week. Uh, you know, you have people that say to only use it once a month, but I'm of the belief that we don't use it enough. Uh, I don't think people understand how important vitamin A is to growth and development of frogs. Uh, so I, like I said, I tend to do that once a week. Uh, I'll use super pig every great once in a while. Um, tadpole food. I make my own tadpole food, which I sell on my website, clevelandfrogcompany.com. Uh, obviously, I can't tell you what's in it. But uh, it was a personal mixture that I created for myself, and I've just been using it for, you know, the past 15 years. As far as the super pig goes, I, I don't have that many rocks, but the ones that I do, at least that I had a, a sexed um, trio of, it was Epipedibetes anthonias, Santa Isabel's, and the parents were extremely red, like emerald red. And I got a lot of variation in the offspring. I got some that were more of a green, and I got some that were more of like a, I don't want to say a muted red, but not as bright as the adults with some very, very reduced white patterns. Are you noticing that you're getting brighter colored offspring by supplementing the adults, and then they lay the eggs that develop into brighter colored froglets, or are you noticing an improvement based on just from froglet to adult? I think it's a matter of both. I think breeder care is just as important as the tadpole care. I mean, I supplement my frogs. I try to give them, you know, I use the super pig. I put carotenes in my fruit fly mix, which is another carotenoid that they can, that the adults can get. Uh, I also use paprika every once in a while. Um, I read a study one time that had said that they did a test on wild frogs and what was in their stomach. And they found, they didn't specify which kinds they were, but they said that they found six different carotenoids in the frog's digestive system. Really? So, exactly. And here we thinking one is good enough, and they find a wild frog with, you know, six different kinds. So that tells me that, you know, that's another opportunity for us as hobbyists to explore is to look at different sources of carotenoids because, you know, I don't know if many people know that, but that is one supplement that your frogs cannot overdose on. Yes. And I, I think what's interesting though is people, I, I think that we have a generally very poor understanding of amphibian supplementation and, and dietary needs because I feel like the reptile market set the bar for what was acceptable and what wasn't. Now, particularly with regards to like beta carotene for vitamin A supplement, because amphibians can't metabolize beta carotene into vitamin A. And I know that there was a tremendous amount of concern about um, overdosing of vitamin A on different supplements. And for some strange reason, 
uh, people completely abandoned using vitamin A at, at all in favor of beta carotene, and the frogs can't metabolize it anyway. Yeah, and I think that that was a mistake because, like I said, they're they're both useful to some degree as far as their development and reproductive health and and things like that. I mean, carotenoids are good for reproductive health. Yeah, I think we have a lot to learn in terms of. I mean, there's there's obviously much better supplements around today than there were in the past, but I often wonder what can we do better in terms of producing, you know, higher quality, healthier frogs. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's things that we can do now, you know, and that's offering a different variety of feeders, making sure that we give the proper supplements, uh, things like that. Do you supplement any other feeders besides fruit flies and spring pails? I know some people experiment with like bean beetles and I've got some of mine to take black soldier fly larva. I've tried bean beetles. They're okay. I mean, they're good for emergency, but you know, they always talk about impaction and that's always scared me. So I tried to not use those very often. Uh, I like aphids. They're pretty good to use. Uh, fruit flies, obviously. Um, I'm trying to think of other things that I've used. I know a buddy of mine is selling wheat weevils. So that's something that I want to explore down the road. Uh, and then, you know, we have like, the, I don't know, 20 different kinds of fruit flies now. So, I mean, I just think, you know, just change it up every once in a while. Maybe, you know, some people use crickets. I don't really care for crickets. They're like the roaches of the insect world to me. So I don't (laughs) (laughs) really use those. I just stick with the fruit flies. (laughs) Roaches are the roaches of the insect world. Well, crickets are almost as bad, man. Yeah, crickets are gross. I can't do crickets. And then you hear about these people who get roaches from bringing crickets into their house. Yeah, no, thank you. I'm not dealing with that nonsense. Yeah, I, I've heard that too. I mean, I've been using banded crickets, which seem to outlive the domestic crickets. But with the domestic crickets, you get one die, and then it's just this domino effect. They all die, and then it smells like yes, ammonia smell downstairs. So bad. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, it I, smells so bad. I remember. I mean, you, you you may remember this too, but nowadays most vendors only sell female crickets. And I did not know that. Yeah, I I've very rarely if ever get male crickets when I buy them, and at least from the vendors that I get them from. And I remember working at the store that I worked at when I was young. We'd have customers come in that would only ask for female crickets because the males were really noisy, and the females were generally larger. So, at the time, I think it was like eight cents a cricket. If you were getting ten crickets for all of eighty cents, <laughs> it seems like nothing now you were getting twice the volume with, with the females as opposed to the males that were much smaller. And I, I don't know if that's just me or what, but I never have a problem with them calling or making noise or anything like that. So I don't know how, how the cricket industry managed to pull that off, but somehow they did. Yeah, I have no idea either. But here's a fun fact for you that I heard. As somebody, you know, wants to start getting into some type of business, I could have swore that I heard that there's only five or six cricket suppliers in the entire United States. Is that true? I believe it is. Uh, I don't know all the logistics of it. And to be honest, I'd like to get someone on the, the show, but I know that, that that business takes a lot of time and effort. And there's been, there, there's cricket, domestic crickets are actually surprisingly susceptible to viruses that just wipe them out. That's why I go with the banded crickets because they don't, they don't 
they're not they don't succumb to the same diseases as the domestic cricket. So I just I just prefer them and from what I understand a lot of the big cricket dealers like to deal with them now because they, they the same thing. They don't have to worry about half their inventory or all their in, or all their inventory dying off. And obviously if it's as I mean, look, there, I don't know of anybody who breeds crickets, so I can only imagine there's just a few people that do it. And I can't imagine you want to have your whole business sunk because some bug gets into your bugs. Yeah, this is true, but also sounds like it's a huge opportunity for somebody to make some serious money. If there's only five or six people in the entire United States, considering all the people that buy crickets. I think it's one of those situations like, and this is, this tends to be like a beginner thing, but you get beginners who I, I, I want to breed my frogs, especially like Pac-Man. I want to get two Pac-Man frogs and breed them. And I start to think, well, you're probably not going to have success if you have just two of them. You're probably going to need more and range and all that stuff. But they produce thousands and thousands and thousands of eggs. And now I understand why there's only like five or six people in the United States who deal with pac-man frogs because you just have so much of it so it's like you know if i can get crickets for if i can get a thousand crickets for 15 bucks plus shipping you know know what i mean it's 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 a gold mine i guess to whoever wants to do it but i mean for me it's like why bother why put up with the the smell and i know some people get sensitive they to certain insects i know people get sensitive to mealworms people get sensitive to crickets but could could this be an up-and-coming venture for the cleveland frog company who knows absolutely not sir (laughs) (laughs) i have no desire but you know any of those listeners out there decide they want to get into the cricket business i'll take a 10 percent finder's fee (laughs) that's a that's a commission yes sales you heard it here first (laughs) well for for everyone listening outside of the u.s we don't have some of the same feeders that are available i know in your i don't know i i don't know what they have available in asia but in europe they have locusts for sale and we don't have those here because we had a there was a prop there was I think it was like during the Great Dust Bowl or something like that in in the middle of the U.S. we had a really severe locust plague that happened for I don't exactly know how long and the locusts ultimately ended up becoming extinct which is really weird but I don't think that the U.S. wants any kind of grasshopper or anything haphazardly released into the environment but. They're a nice feeder if you can get a hold of them in in Europe anyway, and they also have other species of cricket there. I think they have a, I think it's the, the Jamaican cricket, and the other one I think is like the I think it's the black field cricket or something like that. But they all have different caveats to them. But I mean, here we've only got the two species that I know of: the the banded and the domestic. Right. So the that's locusts you're not doing unless you do a field sweep. Yeah, 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 and even then, I would be concerned about parasites and things like that because exactly dirty bugs yep not in my frog room buddy i know i know it's funny because (laughs) this is such this is such a haphazard episode i i mentioned this in a much more serious episode I, i mentioned that the property that i work on we have a lot of bullfrogs and from having people on the show what i understand is bullfrogs are generally I don't want to say carriers, but things like chytrid and, and ronavirus, they're they're more tolerant of certain severe amphibian diseases as opposed to other species like leopard frogs and whatnot. And a guy I work with, he said, why don't you take one of these home? I said, hell no. So I, don't, I don't want that thing in my house. It's like outbreak. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Absolutely not. He can yeah. sleep on the porch. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute. There's a reason I don't mess around with these things because I can imagine that being a nightmare. But I, I just want to get back on track as, be- as best as we can. But on your website, you offer assistance with vivarium design. Do you want to go over, I mean, we, we touched on it a little bit before, but what are some aspects of a vivarium that everyone should have in terms of practicality as well as aesthetics? you want to tell us about some of your input on that subject? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you see a lot of people, you see a lot of tanks that are full of mosses and things like that. And it's it's been my impression that if you go into the rainforest, you don't see moss everywhere unless it's on a log or a tree somewhere. It's mostly leaf litter and, you know, minimal plants here and there type deal growing out of the ground. So I try to build my tanks a little more natural to that. I don't really overplant my tanks. I might use five or six different plants and I plant them and I'll wait the year or two that it takes for the tank to fill in because I'm not an impatient person, I guess, in that way. But I just think it looks more natural as it grows in. And not to mention, you don't have to trim it, you know, every other day or whatnot because it's just overgrowing everything. So I guess that that would be that's my approach to how I build my tanks. I try to make it look as natural as I possibly can. Now, I'm not saying that my tanks that I build are the greatest, but they're certainly not ugly to look at. Uh, so, I mean, that's how I've always approached it. Do you have any choices in terms of substrate? I mean, are you using false bottoms or anything like that? Uh, well, I use uh, uh, in-situ tanks. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar or not. Yes, yes, I am. I had Bill back on the show uh quite a while back actually i'm a big fan of his product he he really thought everything out on those that you could possibly need i feel and uh so but the design of that tank kind of helps with the substrate because it's got the euro slant so it helps to to drain the soil a little bit better uh so i use a little bit of turface on, on that but mostly i just use an abg mix that you know i might throw in a couple of things myself to make it drain a little bit better uh and I put like, you know, two, three inches of soil in my tanks and then I just cover it in leaf litter and that's about it. I mean, I don't do a, a whole lot. I try to keep it pretty simple. I think the substrate issue has to be one of the more, I guess, one of the, the stumbling blocks that people often encounter because I think that we're so predisposed to thinking that just because something requires high humidity that has to be soaked all the time. And then you get things like cocoa fiber, which is just so ubiquitous. I mean, I'll, I'll admit it. I've used it too. But it just it's just terrible at draining. You know, I think it's just part of all the, you know, that bad information segment that we talk about. Just like, you know, you had mentioned that they require high humidity. But technically, they really don't. You can keep dart frogs in as low as 60, 65% humidity and they'll be fine. I mean, in actuality, the problem that a lot of beginners jump into is they think, you know, they see rainforest and they assume water, the tank needs to be wet. And what a lot of people don't realize is if you keep your dart frog tanks at 90, 99% humidity constantly all the time, you're going to create a lot of health problems for your frogs. And on top of the fact that when your humidity is kept that high constantly, they can't thermoregulate properly and they can't use, uh, utilize evaporative cooling. So, 
I mean, even during the, the, my wet season on my frogs, when I'm in the breeding season, I don't run my misters constantly and I don't keep my tank saturated. I run my misters two times a day and everything is dried within three hours. And then I have, you know, six, seven hours in between the next misting. You know, people assume you go into the rainforest and they think it's constant humidity and it's raining all the time. And everything that I've read and been told, you know, you go, it rains within, you know, an hour, the soil is dry again. And the temperature is, is you know, everything is dry until it rains. It's not constantly wet in the rainforest. And I think that that's a common misconception with the way that people keep their dirt frogs. I've, I found that too. And I've noticed that that was a mistake that I made early on was just keeping the substrate too too wet. And I noticed that my frog's behavior changed once I backed off on the misting somewhat and gave them more of a drier substrate to work with. I noticed that the frogs were sitting, and well, specifically it was a Materabilis tank. They were sitting on top of the cocoa huts, and that was it. And at first I was like, oh, that's cool. They're, they're just hanging out. And then I realized they're not sitting on the rest of the substrate at all because it's too wet. So I moved yeah. them into another tank with, I had a little, I have a little depression where they can go that's kind of wet all the time. And then the rest of it is, is raised up higher on egg crate. And they're, they make use of more of the tank that way than they did before when they were just kind of trapped in these little dry islands of cocoa huts. Right. I mean, and when you keep, I know Terribles specifically, if you keep their tank too wet, they're prone to foot rot. Correct. Yeah. And thankfully I didn't have that. I didn't have that problem. Well, maybe you caught it in enough time. You know what I mean? Unfortunately, some people don't read their frogs properly. Yeah, I, it wasn't. I knew I had a problem when I was, I used a layer of Lika and I could see that the level was getting up high where I couldn't see it. There was no line of distinction between the substrate and the, and the drainage layer anymore. So right. I took a turkey baster and I stuck it down in the bottom and I took a sample I was like, oh, that stinks. This is completely gone anaerobic. I, I got to pull this out. So I cut, I, I took the the glass partition that I had restricting the ventilation, took that off. I let it really air out. I turned the misting system off for a few days and I would just take a turkey baster and just siphon it off like I was basting Thanksgiving dinner. Which So if you, turkey baster is a, is a handy tool if you, if you need it. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Yeah. I agree with that statement. <laughs> it's better for them. Yeah. Just, you can move tadpoles with it. You can do all sorts of stuff with it. Yeah. Yes, you can. Yeah. Uh, you know, speaking of uh, vivarium designs and things that you brought up an, another, you said something about ventilation. I want to point out, I don't think it's talked about enough. I am a huge proponent of more ventilation versus less more airflow versus less. I think people are so concerned with keeping the humidity up in their tanks that they're doing their frogs a disservice. What are the ambient conditions like in your home or whatever? Because in in my frog room, I have made an error that really was, well, it was made after the fact. We had central air put in. And I have this very, very huge, elaborate kind of cabinet set up where I have my, I have three dart frog vivariums in there and I have a 40 ground uh, aquarium. The ductwork sits right above one of the tanks. So I can't let that cold air just go in there. I mean, it comes out of the duct 68 and the tank is only a foot and a half away. So I can't let it dry the place out. But 
I can't also can't let it get too cold in there, so I kind of am almost forced to restrict the ventilation. So what would you do in in a situation like that? I mean, do you keep your room a little bit more humid or what? Because I know that the placement of the vivarium in the house also plays a pretty big factor. Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm pretty fortunate in the way that my apartment is. My apartment gets super dry in the wintertime when I run the furnace. But luckily for me, during the wintertime when I'm running my furnace, that's usually when I'm doing my dry season anyways. So it kind of helps me a little bit. At that point, I don't want the tanks to dry out completely, obviously, so I will cover up all the vents and things, but I only maybe miss my tank once a week during those four months that I shut everything down. Uh, as far as the vents, I have the same problem. I just usually cover up the vent so I don't have to deal with it because I'm not concerned with the temperature dropping too, because it's not going to get you know, to 60 degrees in my house during the winter time because the heat's on. But if that back room where I keep my frogs gets a little bit cooler than the rest of the my house, I'm okay with that because it's dry season and the temperature is going to drop a little bit anyways. I mean, I want them to shut down, so I, I want it to cool off a little bit. What are some of the health problems that you've seen with frogs that have not enough ventilation? fungal issues fungal infections on their skin uh i've seen um lung infections happen in frogs that don't have enough ventilation where it's too humid all the time uh i mean that's the two biggest things and then we discuss like foot rot uh those are the main things that i always see is either a lung infections or fungal infections of the skin and usually most people, I would assume, are going to deal with fungal infections. They're going to see that first before they see anything else. How would that normally manifest for listeners out there who haven't seen it? How would you notice a fungal infection? Uh, I've seen it where you know people have had their frogs where it's like a white patch over the skin. I've seen instances where it looks like the color of the frogs themselves have smeared a little bit. Uh, back when the beginning, when I had first started, you know, my first year or whatever, when I was killing everything, you know, when I was keeping my tanks too wet and I had a cobalt where, you know, it looked like the yellow and the black had been smeared together. And, and that was my indication. Hey, something's not right here. Have you ever, this is, may seem like an odd question, but I've had, well, I have two frogs actually that ended up with rostral abrasions and they healed but the color never came back. It almost looks like scar tissue where they, you know, they almost have this like sort of a default gray kind of scar tissue or even yep. black. Have you ever seen that happen? I have. I mean, you see it when, you know, getting frogs shipped, they might rub themselves on the top of the container or, you know, some people use dry lock. I've seen people where their frogs are climbing the background and maybe rub that dry lock the wrong way. And then they rub something. And then, you know, once it heals, they have a scar, even a uh, wild caught frogs. You see those come in with scars all the time. Do you ever, in terms of managing your collection, do you ever do any routine health checks? Like, do you ever do fecals or anything like that, or do like uh, like prophylactic parasite treatments? I've been fortunate enough to not ever have any issues with my frogs. Uh, I've always been taught that you want to test when you see something wrong because an otherwise healthy frog might not necessarily shed anything detectable. That usually those things present themselves when the frog is stressed and their immune system is compromised. So at that point, 
if I was to have an issue like that, that's when I would be doing fecal tests and things like that. I'm not like a big bully. You know, you hear these people online telling people to shotgun their frogs with all these different kinds of treatments and things like that. I'm of the personal opinion that that's potentially more harmful than trying to let the frog heal on its own and just correcting the husbandry issue that you presented to the frog. I think that some of us panic because we don't necessarily see the variation in frog body types and sizes that everyone has, meaning you look at a particular photograph of, of a dart frog or whatever, and a lot of times there are these huge, chunky frogs. But in reality, you can have frogs that are a little bit more slim, I guess you could say. I mean, have you ever noticed that too, that you'll have some frogs that are just, they're healthy, they eat, they're everything. They're just a little bit leaner than than some of the other ones. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest here. I'm not going to say all the frogs in the hobby, but, you know, we see plenty of frogs that are technically overweight and obese. If you compare those to pictures of frogs in the wild, they're a good representation of what our frogs should look like. And not very often do you see pictures of frogs in the wild that are fat or overweight. So that's how I've always... I've always been diligent in how I feed my frogs and how many flies I feed them and things like that because I'm I'm aware that overfeeding is easy to do with dart frogs. And when you overfeed your frogs, that that has a you know a whole other host of health issues that goes along with it, like internal organ problems and things like that. I think it's difficult because of the way that the the fat pads are distributed. I mean, for for any, I mean, I'm not going to give a this whole big referendum on frog biology, but they don't have fat distributed evenly throughout the body the way that mammals do. They have these Correct. fat pads that are in the center of the body. So when they get this full chunky look to them, a, a lot of that is going to be fat pads. So we have to ask ourselves: Well, is that excessive fat buildup? detrimental to the animal's health because i think that now that we've been keeping animals in captivity for such a i mean well not well a relatively long time i mean it's it's been quite a few decades you have animals that are dying from overfeeding and lack of activity and whatnot so is that something that we might be accidentally doing by trying to keep our frogs real like thick and chunky which don't get me wrong looks pretty cool and they look healthy but is that actually good for them I would say no, it's not. I mean, we that's the thing is we've all been trained to see frogs that technically are probably overweight, but we've all been conditioned to think that that's a sign of a healthy frog. And I'm not to say that they're unhealthy, but usually by the time you see those fat pads, you probably have already overfed your frog. And in terms of like snakes, you would know because you have snakes. I believe that there was a study at one point in time and it said that it took up to two years to get their snake to lose weight with a restricted diet once they had determined that the snake was already overweight. So if it takes a snake two years, one would assume that it could potentially take a while with a restricted diet to get our frogs back down to a healthier weight. I think that it's one of those things that we have to sort of stop thinking along the lines of, of, of being mammalian. I mean, obviously, we're most of us start out with dogs and cats as pets. And obviously, if you don't feed a dog or a cat every day, it's not going to 
thrive very long. But as far as the snake analogy goes, is is another podcaster, uh, well, Dylan Parent from Animals at Home. He had a guest on, very very large constrictor that was fed to fed to excess uh, by the time that this particular guy had gotten it. And the snake died very unexpectedly, and he he did a necropsy, and what he found was, again, the same thing with snakes is they don't they don't have subcutaneous fat; they have these like long, I forget the technical term for, it, but like these really long tendrils of of fat pads. And the thing was just obese, and the necropsy revealed that it had actually died from, I guess, the snake equivalent of a heart attack. So all mm-hmm. that extra mass had shortened its lifespan, and I know for a fact because I've done this before, but the animals that I have fed more sparingly, in fact, animals that I would actually let fast live longer. So I've had better results with animals that I don't, I mean, dart frogs are a little bit different, but the animals that I've let fast or not, like I guess power feeding is the term that people would use, I've had live longer lives. They don't get gigantic, but they live longer. Right. I would agree with that. I mean, that kind of gets into the the topic that I sort of wanted to close with was was ethical breeding. And I know you're a big proponent of ethical breeding. Do you want to tell us about how you would define that and what your approach to it is? I mean, I would say the main idea behind my approach to that is putting the frogs before my pocket. You know what I mean? The money is not important. The well-being of the frogs is. So everything that I do, I'm asking myself, is this good for me or is this good for the frog? And if the answer is it's good for me, I'm not going to do it. Uh, and as far as, you know, what I mean by that and some of the things that I do, for example, you know, you go on social media and you might see somebody saying, hey, I have 30, 40, 50 froglets for sale. And it's like, I see these things and I'm like, why? Why do you have that many frogs? Shut them down. It, it just stopped breeding them. You know what I mean? Well, at what point does that benefit the frog? Obviously, you're only serving yourself and you think that you're going to make money, but now you can't sell them and you're stuck with all these frogs. So, I mean, one thing that I make sure that I do is I always keep my frogs on a wet and a dry season. November to March, every single year, my frogs are shut down. They are not breeding. And the reason why I do that is because that's what's best for the frogs and their health. Um, I mean, other things that I try to make sure that I do is, for example, uh, not breeding my frogs too early before they reach sexual maturity. I don't know if some people listening know this or not, but if you allow your, when, when frogs are growing from the time they're a froglet to the time that they're a breeding adult, all of their energy and resources is dedicated to their growth and their development, their bone structure, their eyesight, their reproductive organs, all these different things. And just because, you know, they're mature enough to start calling and they can breed, it doesn't mean that you've allowed them to reach the full adult age and size before you do so. And in some instances, if you allow those frogs to breed before they've reached full size and full maturity, you can stunt their growth. Because what will happen is, is all those resources that they were dedicating to growth becomes redirected towards reproduction. And once that occurs, they generally stop growing and they start reproducing. 
So that's why sometimes, you know, you might see somebody sell a frog. You might go to somebody's house and see a frog and you say, how old is that frog? And they're like, oh, it's three years old. And you're like, what? It looks like it's six months old. That's part of the reason why sometimes you might see stunted frogs is it's a result of premature breeding. I've seen that too. And, and I actually, after doing a little a little digging and a little reflection, I kind of figured out that I had ended up getting a trio of frogs that were just not meant to be from the beginning. And obviously they'd made it past, I'm, I'm going to assume, you know, the four, five, six month stage, but they just, no matter what I did, all, you know, treating for parasites and, and different, everything, they just didn't, they never grew. They never put on any size. And the person I bought it from, again, probably shouldn't have been selling dart frogs. So I'm going to assume to say that he probably had a pair of, uh, he probably had a pear tree or whatever of erratus, did what you said, bred him too early or too often. And then that offspring that really should have either been culled or never should have existed in the first place, I got a hold of. And it ended up costing me a small fortune investing into these frogs that ultimately ended up not thriving anyway. Right. Uh, so, you know, to continue what I was saying about the, uh, some of these things, I mean, uh, tanks, building tanks, you know, you see some of these people that have a simple 10 gallon tank full of mud and maybe a couple pothos clippings that that's not really that great for the frogs. To me, that's a self-serving purpose. You have a rack full of 10 gallons that are built like that. You're obviously in this to breed the frogs for money, and you're not really concerned with the frog's health or keeping them the full 15, 20 years that they may live. So, I mean, I build all of my tanks like they're display tanks. I, I try not to do it cheap. I try to do it all right the first time because, you know, when you try to skip corners, that's when things go wrong. So I, I try to make sure that I build it and spend the money up front ahead of time to, to, to build what they need so that they thrive and not just live because that's important to me. Uh, you know, other things that I don't do or that I see other people do is, you know, they might have this tank and have this other tank and they got to tear down this tank and they spent $50, $60 on this piece of wood and they don't want to throw it away. So they just put it in the next tank and put the next frogs in. I mean, that's a huge no-no, in my opinion. To me, I throw that stuff away. I don't reuse it. Uh, I wear gloves. Every single tank, it doesn't matter if I touch one leaf, and that's it. Those gloves are coming off, and I'm going into the next tank with a new pair of gloves. I mean, those are like anal things like that. There's things like Mike taught me. Do you know what I mean? And it's just... I've always held on to those things. And that's probably why I've never really had to deal with too many issues is because I'm so particular about the way that I handle my collection. That's another thing is cross-contamination, the, the potential for that. And any frogs that I had that were questionable, I mean, I mean even if they were just weak froglets, I don't, I, I have a routine. I don't just go, to, I mean, I'll open up lids and I'll dump fruit flies in, but if I'm doing any kind of maintenance where I'm using my hands, whether I'm pulling out plant clippings or changing leaf litter, I wash my hands between each tank. Right. Because I don't, I don't want, I mean, obviously every living thing has value, but I don't want the, you know, $30 froglet that's failing to thrive 
passing something into my producing pair or or whatever and wiping them out. So I do that too. I, I, you know, like when I wipe glass, I use a separate, I don't use the same paper towel. I use a different paper towel for each pane of glass. And I don't, you know what I mean? It's just, it's those little things, like those little efforts to avoid cross-contamination that can just help. I I mean, maybe it's just me being paranoid, but I just, I couldn't imagine it doing any other way. You know what? The way I look at it is, is it only takes one time. One time to lose your entire collection, all because you didn't change your paper towel. You you know what I mean? And that might be an extreme example, but that's just how I've always approached it. Because like I said, all it takes is one time. And that's enough for me to not ever want to do anything like that. Uh, but as far as the other ethical breeding, another thing that I didn't bring up, and this may ruffle some feathers. So I just want to preface this statement by saying that this is just my own personal opinion. Selling tadpoles is just something I don't do. I might give some to my buddies or, you know, things like that. But as far as if I was to take a tadpole, I'm not, I'm not comfortable personally selling a tadpole to a customer. And I understand why people do it. But me personally, how can I in clear conscience sell this customer a tadpole when I don't know how that tadpole is going to morph out or what its general health is going to be until I've grown it out myself. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I know exactly what you mean. I, um, when I had a producing pair of Patricia's, I, even then I wasn't happy with some of the froglets that morphed out and I had, I was still, it was the first time I'd ever had, I'd ever bred and I was still going through some things and trying to refine my methods. And I started thinking to myself, I wouldn't feel comfortable selling these to anyone because I'm not confident that they're going to thrive and make it into adulthood. So I wouldn't want to sell these even to like a local shop and have you know, like a kid buy them or someone buy them. And then at the four to six month stage, they just, they, they die. I, I personally, I wouldn't be comfortable with that. Right. I'm the same way. And uh, I'm not trying to, like I said, poke holes at anybody or anything like that. It's just, one of the things that I feel is not ethical to do, if I could say that. I mean, I don't know how else to word that. It's just something I personally won't do, and I don't see myself doing. I mean, it goes back into the cycling your frogs and the 30, 40 frogs that people are selling. You know, in some instances, I'm sure some of these people are constantly selling tadpoles because they don't have the time or the space to grow the frogs out. Well, at that point in time, if you're getting to the point where you're having so much offspring that you have to sell the tadpoles, why not shut them down? Oh, those are all those are all good arguments. I, you know, I know people who do both. I know people who don't sell tadpoles. I know people who do. I, I personally, I mean, I can't speak for anybody else. I personally wouldn't feel comfortable selling anyone a tadpole just because I wouldn't be comfortable knowing that it would morph out healthy. I, I would just be concerned for the person purchasing it because I don't know what your success rate is with, with tadpoles. I mean, mine wasn't, wasn't particularly optimal. So I had, and anything that did morph out, I, I didn't want to get rid of anyway. I wanted to keep it. Right. So <laughs> that was another dynamic, but I mean, 
in all honesty, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here, but I don't really deal with too many premature tadpole deaths or, you know, froglet deaths or anything like that. I mean, I might lose one here or there. That's just the, the name of the game. But in general, I would say I lose maybe one or two percent. It's not high. And I, I feel that supplementation has a lot to do with that. Do you, I mean, do you think that the average person might not necessarily be well-versed enough in tadpole care to be able to start with one? That could be. I mean, it could be their parental care, their husbandry. I mean, there's so many outside factors that get involved in that. It's hard to really pinpoint it all. And that's what makes it difficult to get accurate information is because so many people have so many different experiences and so many things do work. But there, you know, in saying that there is a right and a wrong way. We try to tell people, you know, your way is right and my way is right to make people feel good about themselves. But the fact of the matter is there is a right and a wrong way to some extent. So, but uh, I mean, to, to me, that's what ethical breeding is. To sum it all up, it's putting the frog's well-being before anything else. My last question for you is, again, I guess this could be somewhat of a, of a debatable topic, but... Some species have a high price point, particularly Ufaga, and I don't really know what... I know that Amarigo aren't exactly cheap, but do you think that the high price point of certain species creates a bit of a rift in the community? Because you can go to an expo and get an Aratus for 30 bucks, if not even like 10 or 20 bucks, you know, at the right place, but... Do you think that a higher price point preserves the integrity of the hobby more than having species be more commonly available as they are? As much as I hate some of the prices of frogs these days, I do think that it does preserve the hobby to some extent simply because it's human nature to not appreciate things that didn't cost us a lot of money which is why you see azurius and cobalts and these the cheap beginner frogs they're not necessarily respected the same way that the other frogs are and i think that when a person goes from that rite of passage you know cuz over time we all become immune to the higher and higher prices of the frogs we spend $100 on this frog and then eventually we get to the next frog and we talk ourselves into saying oh it's okay if i spend $300 on this frog and then you know over the years you slowly get up next thing you know you're spending $1000 on a large obligate so i feel you know once you work your way up to where you're willing to spend that type of money and you're comfortable spending that kind of money uh I think it does help you appreciate it a little bit more because you're going to be a little bit more attentive because that frog costs you more than the one you may have bought at the reptile convention for $30. That's not to say it's right, but I do think that the prices do help that, that in some regard. Yes. What, what do you think? Uh, I, you know, I have, I have mixed feelings because like I mean, no, I know that my my Azurius, I guess you could consider them kind of a, I guess a garbage locale, as pe people would call them. But I, I still think that they're incredible, and I would love to have certain species. I mean, obviously, I would I would love to have like a Lamani, but 
you know, I started thinking about like the blue phase, the blue, blue phase, the blue phase of certain like certain Pomilio, and uh, I think there's a blue phase histrionica too, right? Like I, I mean, for me, it's just not. I, I have a blue frog, you know what I mean? So I'm okay with spending less money on a more affordable frog or even a more common garbage frog because I can still build this really amazing enclosure and keep it in there. But I feel like a higher price point does have a role because it's going to, how do I put this, keep the riffraff away. Meaning if you're if you're laying out a lot of money for, for a large obligate or something in, in that vein, you're not going to want to, you, you can't mass produce them because of the way that they breed. So I feel like it, does create a higher standard of keeping because then you're going to kind of get rid of the people who are on that fringe, like I talked about earlier. I mean, you're going to have a lot of great people who are going to want to work with more common species. I mean, pretty much, I don't have any real high-end species. I have, you know, Phyllobates, Tinctorius, and a couple of other genera floating around in there, but I'm not working with anything that crazy, but I still feel like it's important to have higher-end species because that keeps... Um, it keeps it clean. I think it also sets a higher standard for people who are working with more common species. I don't know. That's just, that's just my thoughts about it, I guess. Uh, I agree with you. And I think it also gives people something to aim for too. You know what I mean? If you're going to, if you're planning on wanting to own one of those frogs one day, you're going to take the hobby a little bit more serious and you might be willing to devote a little bit more time to getting to that point. But at the same, you know, another, side topic or if you want to call it you know you said you know zurius cobalts the 30 40 dollar tanks they're considered garbage frogs but the good thing is about them is, is they're still when people think of dart frogs those are the frogs that they picture and those are the frogs that you know someone that's getting into dart frogs for the first time those are always the frogs that people are going to ask for when i'm vending at the conventions those are typically the frogs that people are, are looking for and asking for so you know the one good thing about them is versus like, say, you know, the Amarega that have disappeared, uh, they'll always be here. I, I don't foresee Azurius or Cobalt or those type of frogs just disappearing from the hobby the way some of these other frogs have. So in that, I see that as a positive. I can agree with that. I uh, it's just I, I wonder if there's ever going to be a rift between people who keep obligates versus non-obligates really just because of the price point and the breeding because i mean i even know people who work exclusively with obligates they don't keep anything else and that's totally cool i i it's just it's not my preferred method because i i couldn't justify buying a thousand dollar frog to, to my wife so um that's a budgetary thing for me but i don't know i just i wonder if it'll ever come to a point where there's a division between the more common species like dendrobates and obligates. I don't know. Maybe something will happen in the future. I'm not sure. I hope it doesn't happen, though. Division in what way? What do you mean? Well, I mean, let's just let's just draw a quick comparison. We'll pick. Um, why don't we pick the snake hobby? Okay, everyone. I mean, snakes are a huge group. Obviously, it's not really easy to compare them with dwarf frogs, but uh, you have ball ball pythons, which are pretty ubiquitous, and the ball python community kind of became its own thing, independent of the greater snake community as a whole. 
So you have a less expensive, easier to take care of snake that's kind of become its own niche as opposed to say something else like I'm trying to think of an odd species that might not necessarily be kept too commonly. Um, I'm drawing a blank at the moment, but um, let's just, okay, let, let's say green tree pythons, which typically command a higher price point you know, with the exception of certain ball python morphs. So those communities are two very, very different communities inside of the greater snake community. So is there going to come a point where the dart frog community sort of divides in a similar fashion with the more commonly available, cheaper species becoming community and the higher end obligates and species like that, species that typically command you know, a few hundred dollars or more for an individual, is that going to become its own community? Mm. I mean, that would be curious, wouldn't it? I'm, maybe I'm just completely overthinking this. I, <laughs> I, I spent... I spent too much time watching YouTube videos today, and I think that <laughs> might be, might be, I've lost it here. I mean, I think we're already there to to, to a, a small extent, if you think about it, because, you know, there is a large portion of the hobby that strictly only deals with obligates. And, you know, I'm sure that some of those people only deal with obligates because they feel like they're protecting their investment a little bit more. They don't have the same amount of people breeding those frogs, so they don't have to worry about competition and things like that. And the fact that they don't breed as often as the more common frogs kind of retains their value for the most part. So I'm sure that has a part to do with it. But I mean, you have your people that like the more common stuff and tend to keep that. And then you have your people on the other end. So, oh, I mean, I could see it being a possibility, but at the same time, I don't know if it would change more than it is right now, if that makes sense. I don't know. It's just sort of, uh, I don't know, just sort of musing and thinking about the topic. Cause well, I guess we'll uh, find out in 10 years or so, won't we? I Maybe if, we still, <laughs> if we're all still here. <laughs> if we can still even, God only knows what we'll have in, 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 in 10 years. Who knows? We could be keeping like stingrays or something else that I never thought we would have kept. No. Good Lord, let's hope not. I just, because I remember being a kid and seeing pictures of dart frogs in National Geographic and thinking to myself, I'm never going to see something like this in my life. And now I own them in my home and uh i don't know who knows what what will become more and more species seem to become available in the trade every day and whether that's not just frog species but whether that's a good thing or a bad thing who knows but never in my life did i think that i would see the species available today that are available well see that's the beauty of being a grown-up now dan we get to buy whatever we want <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's like the old guy with this with the sports car you know exactly it took me 50 years to get this jaguar and i don't know I, it is what it is but well maybe by the time you're 50 you'll have an amarega tank maybe 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 <laughs> by the time i'm i'm 42 now maybe by the time i'm 42 and a half who knows hey but the I'll point is this to it, buddy. <laughs> uh no we'll see it's something i'd like to do i just i'm i'm trying to manage my co my collection as best as i can with what i have but you you, you have admittedly tempted me now so you know what they say. If you're out of space, you're not being creative enough. <laughs> That's true. That's true. All right. I want to thank uh, Nick for coming on the show again. It's It's been, I know this was kind of a more casual show and sometimes, uh, you know, we do that because we want to have fun. It is, it is an enjoyable hobby and we, we joke around, but 
all, all kidding aside, I, I picked up a lot. I like to talk to people who are, uh, you know, in different mindsets, have different ways of keeping and whatnot. And um, it was nice to, is that a cat? Yeah, that's my bangle <laughs> being annoying. Okay, awesome. Now we've got some cat content in there. Sorry too, about that. No, it's cool. It's cool. We're out the window with this one anyway. So um, if the cat wants to come on and talk about, you know, his feelings about frogs, we got another four hours we could allocate to it. <laughs> All right. In any event, I want to thank Nick for coming on the show. It's It's been a great interview, and uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it and uh, more to come. So thank you all for listening. Catch up with you guys again soon. Hey, thanks for having me on, Dan. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Nick.